With all wisdom and understanding, God made known to us the mystery of his will, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Therefore, he appointed Jesus as head of the church, which is his body. And just as a body, the one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body. So it is with Christ and us. So we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ and mature in the body, putting off our old selves to be made new and clothing ourselves with the full armor of God. Each part does its work until we all reach unity in the faith and knowledge of the Son of God. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love. And there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. Well, I would as, as well like to say happy Father's Day to all the fathers out there here in Bellingham, those of you in Skagit, uh, watching online at the live stream uh, in Boca Raton. So good to have you with us, uh, not just fathers, but everybody. Um, I'm very excited that you are here today. It's a, it's a unique day for us uh, here in Cornwall. Uh, we are starting a brand new series, and we are going to be immersing ourselves and becoming students of a piece of scripture that has been referred to as the distilled essence of the Christian faith. Faith. And you think about the, the weight of that statement, the distilled essence of the Christian faith. Uh, one scholar said about this piece of scripture that it was the greatest statement about God's plan and purpose through the church and through individuals. Again, a very weighty statement. This is, this is God's greatest statement of his plan and his purpose for the church and in individuals. And that's been the case for a couple of thousand years, including this church and us as Christ followers as individuals today. And we're going to just... We're just going to dive into this uh, piece of scripture. This section of scripture is a thing that is referred to, um, it's a word I don't use a whole lot, but it's referred to as an epistle, not an apostle. There's a difference there. This is an epistle that was written by an apostle. So if we're getting confused yet, hang with me, it'll get worse. So an epistle is a, is a letter that was written to a group for teaching purposes. And we have several of these in the New Testament. And this is what is referred to, we often call it a book, but it was really a document. It was a letter that was written, and it's the book of Ephesians. And here's the great thing. For some of you, your children get out of school this week for summer. We're going to dive into this book, this, this letter, until they're back in school. We aren't going to be done with this until the second week of, of September, and I hope that you'll be a part of this uh, with us uh, as we look into the book of Ephesians. Morris Berquist, in his little book on Ephesians, made this statement, quoting Charles Spurgeon, where Spurgeon said, the greatest week of my life was the week where I read the, the, Paul's letter to the Ephesians 56 times. 
I'm not expecting you to read this letter 56 times in a week. However, by the end of our time today, I am going to challenge you to read it at least once this week. And I want us to get in. As Paul starts off many of his letters, there's this identification kind of setting the stage. And so we start off in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where he says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus, grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to spend 13 weeks in this book, but this is about as far as we're going to get into it today. So, you know, hang in there. I'll show a couple other verses from this book, but today I want to, I, I want to, I want to set the back, the, the foundation, give some historical context, the background. I would say that what we're doing today, I, I don't have a sermon to preach but a lesson to teach. So I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys even distinguish between that. This doesn't feel to me like a sermon, more like a lesson. So for some of you who love history, you're gonna just be eating this up. Some of you are going, come on, make me emotional or something. I, I don't know, anyway. So hang in there. There's a lot, a lot of information we're gonna to cover today. And we're gonna start right here with the who. Who wrote this letter and to whom was it written and how did their lives even interact and, and where did that all start from? So it says an apostle, uh, the apostle Paul, and, and some of you know his story. He was originally a guy named Saul. Uh, he was a Jewish a young man. He was raised by Jewish Hebrew parents in a place called Tarsus, which is up in today modern day Turkey. He was from a very devout Jewish family, and he, as a young man, was one of those kind of guys, and you knew these ones in school, who didn't want to pass fail grade. They wanted to get every question right. They wanted extra, extra credit. They wanted to be at the top, and he always was. He was a strict adherence to, to the law. He kept it flawlessly. And as he grew up, his biggest dream was to be this religious leader. He became a Pharisee, not only just a Pharisee, but a Pharisee of Pharisees. And he was trained under the great rabbi Gamaliel. This was a, a, an amazing um, opportunity for him. He moved from Tarsus to Jerusalem to, to be tutored by the rabbi Gamaliel. I think that you can, you can build a pretty strong probable case, not bulletproof and not totally biblical, but a very strong probable case that the, the, uh, the young man Saul and Jesus were actually contemporaries. And I think you can build a pretty strong case that they probably met they probably met during Jesus' ministry on the times that he went to Jerusalem, the times he interacted with Pharisees. I think that, that it's pretty probable that their lives inter intersected. What's interesting, though, is that this young man, Saul, was not one of Jesus' followers. He was not one of the 12 disciples. He did not buy into Jesus being the Messiah. In fact, it was just the opposite. He was one of the biggest opponents of Jesus and his followers. Because of his, his devotion to the Judaism and to the law and to the things of God, he saw this, this man who claimed to be the Messiah and his followers as an abomination to the Lord that he loved and served and gave his life for. And so he fought against it. In fact, he was not, uh, he was not only not a follower, he would have been a spiritual terrorist with his main target being these followers of Jesus. In fact, in Acts chapter eight, verse three, it says that Saul was going out to destroy the church. And he would have these Christians arrested, he would have them beaten, he would have them thrown in prison, he would have them even killed. But all that changed one day on a trip he was making to the north, again, to chase down Christians and, and to try to snuff out this thing called the way, where he met Jesus in a, we shall say, in an enlightened way. 
He met Jesus and he discovered grace and his life was never the same. And what's amazing is that there are these dramatic shifts in his life. From being a, a one who would not follow Jesus, he became a follower of Jesus. From being the terrorist against the, the people of Jesus, he became the greatest evangelist for the things of Jesus. And what's even more, because up to this point, while Paul hated the Christians, there was one group of people that he hated even more, and that was Gentiles. And after he met Jesus, he becomes an apostle to the Gentiles. This was unheard of, this was unthought of, that, 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 that Paul, that any Jewish person would want to include Gentiles, but especially this guy. And that he would be the one that he would go out and say, I want you to be a part of this following after Jesus. I want you to be a part of God's family. I want you to be a part of this kingdom of God. So later in this book, and we'll see this later in the summer, he writes these incredible words in Ephesians chapter three. Although I am less than the least of all God's people, which again was a shift because Paul was pretty full of himself, pretty arrogant in his own self-righteousness. And now he's very humbled by grace. As says, although I am less than the least of all God's people, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make plain to everyone the administration of this mystery, which for ages past was kept hidden in God, who created all things. Now there's some themes we're gonna see throughout this summer. Grace, riches, mystery, these kind of things. And he says, God's grace was upon me and he called me to go to the Gentiles and tell them about this unsearchable riches of Christ that's available even to them. There was another time when he's telling his life story. He's telling about this conversion. And after he met Jesus, he goes back to Jerusalem. And Jesus gave to him this message in, in Acts chapter 22. Said, the Lord said to me, go, I will send you far away to the Gentiles. Jesus not only redeemed him by his grace, but he gave him these marching orders. Says, I'm going to send you far away. Away, away from your hometown. Away from Jerusalem. Away from Israel. And I want you to go to the Gentiles. Now, after he was converted, he spent three years in Arabia, and some people believe that he met with Jesus. There's no biblical uh, background for that. But he went to Arabia for three years, and then he returned home for about 10 years to Tarsus. Following that, are, are you still with me? Yep. Okay, because there's gonna be a lot of information. Following that, he embarked on the first of what would have been three, possibly four missionary journeys. Three that we know of for sure, one that's a little bit more speculative. He embarks on these missionary journeys where this becomes the reality, where he goes far away to take the mystery of the riches of Christ to the Gentiles. On his second missionary journey, he sails into the port of this city in Turkey, uh, what uh, then was called the province of Asia, he, he sails into this city called Ephesus. And this is what it says. They arrived at Ephesus where Paul left Priscilla and, and Aquila. These are our, our Italian friends. They got kicked out of Rome. All Jewish people got kicked out of Rome, not just the two of them. They weren't singled out. But Priscilla and Aquila, he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews when they asked him to spend more time with them. He declined. It's interesting. Here's what's Paul. He is a, he's, was a Pharisee. He was trained under Gamaliel. Of course he would go to the synagogue. Of course he would reason with them. He would speak their language. He would talk about the law. He would do all these things. And they were very interested to hear more about him. They said, stay with us. And he said, no, 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 I've got, I've got to move on. And so he leaves. But that's his first encounter with Ephesus. He leaves and he goes. Now, let me just kind of give us a, a visual on this whole thing. In a map, this is the whole Mediterranean area. You have Israel down here with Jerusalem. 
And you have over here, Italy, here you'd have what we call Greece, and this is what we would call Turkey. In this area that is Turkey today, this was referred to as Asia Minor. We hear the word Asia, we think Far East. Anytime you read in the New Testament scriptures when it talks about Asia, the province of Asia, those kind of things, it's talking about this region right here. And this is, uh, Paul, uh, when he was Saul, was, grew up right over here in Tarsus, but he comes into Ephesus. Ephesus is a port town. It's a very, while it's not the capital of Asia, uh, of this province of Asia, it is the most populous, most important, and most illustrious city in all of Asia Minor. Because any kind of uh, trade route that was coming from the west would go through Ephesus, and then there would be this, the, the land trade routes that would go. So Ephesus was kind of the, the bottleneck out of the funnel, whatever. The, the, everything kind of went through Ephesus, coming, coming and going by land and by sea. And so there was a lot of, lot of stuff happening there in Ephesus. He's there, and Ephesus is uh, this, this incredibly large town or city, uh, a Roman city. He's there briefly in his second missionary journey. On his third missionary journey, he comes across the land to Ephesus again. And this is what we read in scripture. While Paulus was in Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples. We'll get into that in just a minute. But he comes now back to Ephesus. Ephesus was a Roman city and Rome had this thing figured out. They had their road systems figured out. They had their sewer systems figured out. They had their, their uh, uh, cities set up. You go to any Roman city and it's very similar the way it's set up. And there's some things that you will find in any Roman city. One of the things you find is that they always had a theater. And Ephesus was no different. In fact, they were known for their theater. In fact, 2,000 years later, this is a picture of that theater. This is the theater that was there when Paul was there 2,000 years ago. Here's what's amazing about this theater, is that in Ephesus, at, the, at Paul's day and age, this theater held up to 20,000 people. Later, it was expanded to hold 25,000 people. 20,000 people. Let's put this in perspective. In the arena called Key, before any renovations, there was a seating capacity of 17,000 people. In the Tacoma Dome, there's a seating capacity of 23,000 people. So in this town called Ephesus, there's an arena, there's a theater that can seat as many as Key Arena and Tacoma Dome somewhere in there. And keep in mind, these weren't people that were driving down from Bellingham to see Metal Militia and the Monster Jam. These were people that were local. They had to walk there, but this was a big enough area with a big enough draw that they could bring in at least 20,000 people or even more. And there's going to be something significant that takes place in this theater, in this story. Now, while the theater was impressive, and it was, and the port was, uh, was amazing, and the city was great. There was one thing that stood out amongst everything else in Ephesus. And we see that in a speech that happened in this theater when the city clerk, and, and I'll, I'll tell you the context of this later in, this, in the, the talk, uh, where the city clerk gets up and he speaks, and this is what he says. The city clerk quieted the crowds and said, men of Ephesus, doesn't all the world know that the city of Ephesus is the guardian of the temple of the great Artemis and of her image, which fell from heaven. Now there's a lot in here that we can kind of dig into to know more about this city. That there's this temple, there's Artemis, this, this Greek goddess, and whose image fell from the heavens. I, I know this is gonna like show how old I am, because I am old. But there was a movie like 39, 40 years ago 
called The Gods Must Be Crazy. Anybody ever see that? I mean, you owe it to yourself to watch this someday. It's, it's really horrible. But it's, the highest grossing movie that South Africa ever produced. Of course, they're not known for movies. But The Gods Must Be Crazy. There's this guy, he's flying in a plane, he drinks a bottle of Coca-Cola, and he throws the bottle out the window, and it falls into the village of people who have had no contact with the outside world. And here's this Coca-Cola bottle, and they don't know what it is, and they try to throw it back to the God. Anyway, I always think of that when I hear this. Okay, I just, I do, like, her image fell from the sky. Ooh, Coca-Cola bottle, there it is, Artemis. Well, most people believe that what he's referring to is that there was a meteor that did not completely burn up on entry into our atmosphere and that a big black rock had fallen to earth and landed in Ephesus. And they said, wow, that looks like the goddess Artemis. And so they built this temple because there's this rock that was like Artemis, the goddess, saying, look, here's who I am. Now that rock is long since gone, but they made statues of Artemis. Several years ago when we were in Rome, we were in the Vatican, we were in the Vatican Museum and saw one of these ancient statues of Artemis. And um, the ancient statue is like this. This was Artemis, and I don't want to get real graphic, but it's a multi-breasted um, Artemis, which would reflect the fertility of nature. So some of the things that happened in the worship of Artemis would have been really quite immoral in all of that. So this is all happening in Ephesus. You'll remember the city clerk talked about we are guardians of the temple. And this was what was so significant. This is what put Ephesus on the map more than anything else. This is what Ephesus was known for worldwide. Some of you have maybe seen the, the Parthenon in, in Athens, Greece, which is a spectacular temple to Athena. The temple for Artemis was four times bigger than the Parthenon, four times bigger surrounded by 127 pillars of, of stone that were 60 feet tall. This thing was magnificent. And people from all over, really, the known world would come to this temple to worship this goddess, Artemis. Now here's a little, little uh, preview. In the shadow of that temple, in Ephesus that's known for the temple to the, to the goddess Artemis, Paul writes in Ephesians chapter two how they are the holy temple of God that God dwells right within. I mean, the, the imagery of it is, okay, so I'm, I'm preaching a sermon that doesn't come till July. All right, so it's an amazing thing. So you have this incredible temple that's there. And in this, this city of, 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 of Ephesus, Paul spends three years. This is really unusual for Paul. Usually he comes in, plants a church, appoints some leaders, and moves on. But he spends three years at Ephesus. And while he's in Ephesus, he writes some letters to another church that he planted, a church in Corinth. And so our books in the Bible, First and Second Corinthians, those are letters he wrote while he was staying in Ephesus. And while he's staying in Ephesus, he writes to Corinth and he, he tells the, the, the followers in Corinth a little bit of what God is doing in Ephesus. In First Corinthians, he writes this. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost because a great door for effective work has opened to me and there are many who oppose me. He says, there's something going on here in Ephesus. God's at work. There's great opportunity and there's great opposition. There's a door for ministry that is flown wide open and I have to walk through it. And I'm telling you, every time I take a step, God blesses it. But every time God blesses it, it seems like I'm getting hit. Do you know that sometimes when you're in the heart of God's will, when you're doing exactly what God wants, sometimes that's when you're gonna get the greatest resistance from the enemy. 
And Paul would later refer to this again, now I'm preaching out of of August, in in, uh, Ephesians chapter six, where he says, our battle is not against flesh and blood. There's a spiritual battle going on, put on the armor. Okay, that one, you gotta wait, gotta wait. So he says, there's this great opportunity for me, but there's great opposition that it seems like I face at every front. But there is this this thing where, where God is doing an incredible work. So he goes in on his third missionary journey, goes into Ephesus, and he meets these 12 guys who've heard about Jesus. They heard about John the Baptist, but they've never heard about the Holy Spirit. And Paul prays for them, they receive the Holy Spirit. And then as is his custom, Paul being raised Jewish, Paul being a Pharisee, Paul being trained under Gamaliel, Paul goes to the synagogue. And this is what we read. Paul entered the synagogue and he spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. If anyone could argue persuasively with Jewish people, it would be Paul. He knew their language, he knew their books, he knew the law, he knew the prophets, and he knew how they all pointed to a Messiah. And he knew how all that was fulfilled in Jesus. And he could talk to them about how Isaiah 53, the suffering servant, was Jesus as he was crucified. They could talk about he's given the, the ransom with the living, how he was raised from the dead, how all of that was fulfilled in Christ, and he brings the kingdom of God and he opens it up. Anyone could argue persuasively, it was Paul. And he did. And there were many people who began to follow. Jewish people who were hearing all the fulfillment of the law and the prophets was found in Jesus. And this guy, Paul, is telling us about the kingdom of God. But not everybody was so excited about it. It says some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. The way is that the title they use for Christians. And I think Paul gets this. He'd say, guys, I know. I was there too. I was like the greatest terrorist against this thing that I'm preaching for right now. I had people arrested, I had people killed. I know, I know it seems to, to, to go against everything you believe, everything we've been taught, everything we stand for. I know that, but, but hear me out. And they wouldn't. And there was great opportunity and there was great opposition. And I kind of find this funny. I know it's not terribly funny, but I find this funny. It says this, so Paul left them. He took the disciples with him. Fine then. I'll take my ball and go home. I mean, like, okay, I'm not welcome here anymore. I'm not going to stick around. I'm not going to put up with this. I don't have to do this. And he, and he leaves. And he leaves with some of the people who are now followers after Jesus. But there's a little bit of a problem. Where do they go? I mean, where do you go? There's a synagogue. They're not welcome there. There's a temple to Artemis. You don't really want to take your kids' ministry up there. There's not a lot of Sears buildings, not a lot of Albertsons buildings, not a lot of Joe's uh, or, or you know, sporting goods that have gone out of business so you can take the strip mall and turn it into a church. Where do they go? Where do they meet now? And he finds this guy, this like philosopher guy who has his own area where he teaches, but he takes a break every day from 11 a.m. to 4 p.m. They'd stop, they have lunch, they take a siesta, and then he starts up again at four. Some kind of an arrangement set up, some sort of little lease agreement that Paul said, while you're not using your area, can I come in and can I use that for my, my disciples, my followers? And they say, yeah. So it says that, that Paul left the synagogue, he took his disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. All of his friends called him T-Rex. Little guy. No, I'm just, that, okay, I made that part up. That's not biblical. 
but it's kind of like a Tyrannosaurus. Okay, you know where I was going with that. So Paul has these, these people that come to this hall, this lecture hall of Tyrannus every day from 11 a.m. to four, and they talk about the kingdom of God. They talk about scriptures. They talk about what God is doing, all this, and people are, are, are receiving this. Keep in mind now, a great door of effective work has opened up. We're not talking about a small group Bible study that Paul's having here. Yeah, I've got my eight to 12 people and we come and we discuss things, then we have a little piece of cake and then we head home. This is something more than that. Because remember as well, Ephesus is like this hinge point where everyone from the sea that's going on land comes through Ephesus and they're all there and there's all this commerce and there's this theater and all these people that come for this, this Artemis worship. There's a lot of people coming and going from Ephesus all the time and people are coming and going and hearing the message of the gospel. And it's a big deal because in verse 10 it says this, this went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Not just in Ephesus, but all throughout what we know as Turkey. They would hear this message and then they would take it home with them and then they would start their churches. They would hear this message and they would go. They'd hear this message. They would get on a ship. And so it just goes and it's explosive what God is doing from this epicenter in Ephesus. And this isn't the only time it's mentioned this way. In verse 20, it says this. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. This kingdom of God, these followers of the way, the word of Jesus, the grace, this mystery that's been locked up, the riches that are un unsearchable are just spreading throughout this whole area. Now in Ephesus, not only do you have Artemis, idol worship, you have that a lot, but it was also the center of great superstition, magic, black magic, those dark arts, incantations, chants, uh, spells, a, a lot of that. And a lot of people had been involved with that. In fact, they would come and, and you can study Ephesus on your own and what they would do with these little scrolls and these little chants and these little things. And some of them were becoming followers of Christ. And they weren't just saying, okay, well now I believe and I can get into heaven. It wasn't just salvation because salvation doesn't just stop there. They believed and there was salvation and God was working and there was transformation, what the Bible refers to as sanctification. Their lives were being radically transformed. They were not the same. They were putting on a new life, a, a, a new way of living. In fact, uh, it, it says this, many of those who believed now came and openly confessed their evil deeds, true repentance. A number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. They said, we wanna leave this old way of life. We are gonna do this publicly. This is almost like a public baptism. We are giving, we're forsaking this old way. We're burning these things. And the, the value, the, the monetary value of these scrolls was 50,000 drachmas. Now for us, we don't even know what a drachma is. We just think, well, it must've been like a Canadian dollar. So, you know, 50,000, I'm like, well, okay, so we're talking about $350? Well, I mean, what do we got going here? Listen, a drachma, sorry, Canadians, a drachma was equivalent to a laborer's day's labor work pay. So, whether, think in your mind, whether it be minimum wage or prevailing wage, what would a laborer receive in pay for one day's work? Now, you times that by 50,000, this was worth a lot of money. And some of you are saying, why didn't you put it on eBay? 
Why didn't you go down and put it to the consignment shop? What they were saying is, listen, this is not of the Lord. This is of the devil. This is wrong. It's not for us and it's not for anybody. We don't want to sell it. We don't want to give it away. We want to destroy this because it's not God's stuff. What you see what happened in Ephesus in these three years is a term that we use around here a lot. That the spiritual landscape was altered. It was being altered. It was being altered one life at a time. As people would hear this message of the, the riches of Christ, they would submit to Jesus. They were being transformed. They were filled with the Holy Spirit. But that was happening on a wide scale level too. And it was altering the spiritual landscape of not only Ephesus, but the whole region was being transformed because of the message of Jesus Christ. It was impacting them spiritually, it was making a difference culturally, and it had an impact economically. And not everybody was too happy about that one. There's a guy named Demetrius. By the way, you can read all of this in Acts chapter 19. There's a guy named Demetrius, and Demetrius was a silversmith, and he was kind of a leader amongst the, the business world. Um, and so he would, he would help guys get their start uh, in the business, and a lot of it had to do with the business surrounding the literally hundreds of thousands of people, maybe millions of people that would come to Ephesus for the purpose of going to the temple of Artemis and worshiping. So there's a lot, of, a lot of commerce that went around that. And what they're noticing is, because of the mystery of the riches of Christ, the gospel, the transformation that's not only happening in Ephesus, but in the whole region, is that the numbers of visitors coming to see the great Artemis and, and the statue and the, the temple, the number of visitors is declining. Which means the number of products that they were selling is declining. Which means the level of their bottom line and their profits is declining. And so, Artemis, who's kind of their unspoken leader, he just says, well, we need to have a meeting. Kind of, let's, let's all come down to the union hall, fellas. And this is what happens. He called them together along with the workmen in related trades. So you've got silversmiths and maybe you've got these vendors and housing people, whatever. He pulls them together and said, men, you know we receive a good income from this business. He's saying, this has been lucrative for us for a lot of years. A lot of you are very wealthy because of this. And you see and hear how this fellow Paul has convinced and led astray large numbers of people here in Ephesus and in practically the whole province of Asia. What God is doing, through, it's no wonder Paul says there's a great door of effective work open for me. What God is doing through Paul in Ephesus, the whole community and region is taking notice. And they're saying he's, he's convinced people not to worship Artemis. He's leading them away. They're not coming. They're not buying our stuff. And, and he has the unmitigated audacity to say, he says that man-made gods are no gods at all. <laughs> Can you believe that? Some of these guys were artisans who made man-made gods. They made their living by selling these little images of, of Artemis so that people could buy them and take her home with them and worship her wherever they lived. And he's coming and saying, that's no God. Are you kidding me? That black stone up there on the hill, that's no God. And I've gotta believe, a little bit of a, a rabbit trail here. I've gotta believe that Paul being so, so steeped in, in the Hebrew scriptures, when he talked to them about the one true living God, 
and idol worship that he probably pointed to that passage in Jeremiah. It says this, for the customs of the peoples are worthless. They cut a tree out of the forest and a craftsman shapes it with his chisel. They adorn it with silver and gold. They fasten it with hammer and nails so it will not totter. Like a scarecrow in a melon patch, their idols cannot speak. They must be carried because they cannot walk. Is that the deity you wanna, you wanna worship? Something you carve out of a tree and you say, come on, God, let's go. <laughs> okay, I'm gonna say you there, hold on a second, let me nail you down so you don't fall over. My God has fallen and he can't get back up. <laughs> he can't even talk to me. And he's just putting it right in their face. He said, are you kidding me? You think that's a God? And, and here's Demetrius saying, guys, he, he's saying that and people are believing him and they're not coming anymore and they're not, they're not buying the stuff anymore. Back to verse 27. He says, there's a danger, not only that our trade will lose its good name. In other words, we're losing money, fellas. He says, oh, 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 let's be spiritual. And also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be discredited and the goddess herself who is worshiped throughout the province of Asia and the world will be robbed of her divine majesty. Little side note, if whatever deity you follow or worship cannot withstand criticism, critique, opposition, and you're worried that the majesty of whatever divine being you follow can be robbed by someone else, that's not a divine being worth following. It's the one who is God who never changes, no matter what anyone says or does, and is lifted up name above all names, the one true God. So they're all concerned about this. They're, they're all upset. So there's this, this, this big uproar, and, and the men all start chanting in one voice, great is Artemis of the, of the Ephesians, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Now they all march down to the theater where we started. They're all in the theater. Thousands of these people are in the theater, and it's borderline a riot is almost ready to take place. That's why, what we read earlier, that's why the city clerk stands up to quiet them down. Says, guys, 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 we're gonna be in trouble here if we don't settle down. And then he speaks to them uh, some wisdom about that as well. And as he's doing this, they're all, they're all upset about this, but what you see is that there is, there's a great opportunity for ministry, and all along the way, there's great opposition. When they're all gathered in the theater, Paul says, let me go talk to him." and people are going, Paul, do not go in there. Don't be stupid. You know, and, and they, you know, but it's kind of keep him away from that. While, I told you, while he was in Ephesus for three years, he writes these letters to the church in Corinth. And he talks about the opposition that he's up against in this area and how difficult it is. In 1 Corinthians, he says this, if I fought wild beasts in Ephesus for merely human reasons, what have I gained? Now he's speaking figuratively wild beast. He's talking about people that, that want to devour him and the work of God. A little side note, I found this interesting in my study. There's a, a non-biblical legend that came out of this verse and is recorded in some apocryphal writings. And the legend was that when Paul wrote this, here's the legend that developed around it, that there was so much persecution that Paul was actually thrown to the lions, but he befriended the lion and baptized the lion and was no longer in danger for his life. We know that can't be true because cats can't be saved. <laughs> but anyway, it, 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 was, it, was all just, it was all just a legend. So, so he writes, he says, like these people, they, they're opposing me like, like wild beasts 
Or in 2 Corinthians, where it says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the hardships we suffered in the province of Asia. Remember, that's this whole area of Turkey. We were under great pressure, far beyond our ability to endure. Listen, don't ever say again, the Bible says God will never give you more than you can endure. The Bible doesn't say that. Paul says we got more than we could endure. What the Bible says is God will walk with you even when you can't endure. His spirit will empower you and he will be with you even through the valley of the shadow of death. He will never leave you or forsake you. He says we were far beyond our ability to endure so that we despaired even of life. It was so bad. I mean, there was amazing things that God was doing, but the pressures we were under and, and the opposition we were facing was beyond what we could even imagine. And for three years, the kingdom of God not only flourishes in Ephesus, but because Ephesus is this, this I keep I'm missing the word I'm looking for, that people come and go, that it spread. It, just, it would just kind of continue to go out in the whole region. At the end of the three years, Paul's getting ready to leave, stops back by Ephesus, gets all the elders of the church down at the dock. He's going to sail back to, to, to Jerusalem. And he says this to them. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I've declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said, I never backed down from the truth with you. And it didn't matter if you were Jewish or if you were a Gentile. I told you it's the truth for all of us. We have to repent, we have to follow Jesus, we have to go his way. And then he says, I'm leaving, I won't be back. Later it says this, and they're all weeping. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. And with tears in their eyes, they say bon voyage, and off he sails into the sunset and then back over to Jerusalem. Now, that's how Paul and this church in Ephesus started out. Fast forward now, five, six years. Paul's on trial. He's being held at a place called Caesarea Maritima. It's right there on the, on the, sea of, uh, on the Mediterranean Sea. And he's being held there under a guy named uh, Felix. And he retires and there's a guy named Festus and King Agrippa comes. And he's on trial and the, the trials aren't really working well. And so as a Roman citizen, which was unique, Paul was a Roman citizen. As a Roman citizen, he could appeal to a higher court. And he says, I appeal to Caesar. And Festus, which I just love a guy from the Bible named Festus. <laughs> Festus says, you appeal to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. And they put him on a ship and they send him off to Rome. Now, when he's in Rome awaiting trial, he's detained. He's in house arrest for two years. And during those two years, while he can't travel, he writes some letters to some of the churches that he's been involved with. These letters are called the prison epistles, like Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, and a little book called Ephesians. While he's waiting there in Rome, he writes this letter and this takes us full circle to where we started in Ephesians chapter one. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God to the saints in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, some of you who have studied Ephesians, some of you who knew we were gonna study in Ephesians and have already started being a little aggressive and reading already ahead, some of you who love the commentaries and the study Bibles and all that stuff, you're digging in, you're saying, yeah, but Bob, but Bob, Bob, don't forget. Okay, I know, I know, I know. Let's get to it. Ephesus. Some of the earliest manuscripts of this letter 
do not include the word Ephesus. I don't want us to get high centered on that. I don't want us to spend too much time down that rabbit trail. I think there's some good reasons for that. And I think there's some good reasons why it's in there in the later translations. But here's the thing. What you find when Paul writes this, and he's in Rome between like AD 60 and 62. So somewhere in 60, 61, he writes this letter. He writes the letter to the Ephesians, but to the Ephesians, this letter is written to the church, capital C, church. Now let me explain this. In some of his other letters to specific churches, he will address specific problems in that specific body of believers. He might say, hey, this doctrine is off, you've gotta get that right. Hey, this behavioral issue that's going on, you've gotta set that straight. Hey, this relationship that's going on with these two gals, get them figured out. Hey, this leadership issue, you gotta get him out and put him. He was dealing with specific uh, instances and putting out fires and, and specific issues for a specific church. Not so in the book of Ephesus. That's why this is said, as I started off, seen as the distilled, the, the concise distilled essence of the Christian faith. He's not dealing with specific issues in a church. He says, this is a message I want the entire church to hear. And most believe, and I would, I would uh, agree with this, that this was sent as a circular letter that while it may have been sent originally to Ephesus, the intention was that it would be passed around to all of these churches in Asia Minor, in the whole region because it's got a message. He says, this isn't just for one church. This is for the church, which is really quite cool now as we go back to this verse. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God to the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus, to all of them. And this is especially important for you and I as we embark on this this summer because we begin to realize this isn't just a document that's 2,000 years old written to a certain group of people in Turkey that are all dead now. This is a document written 2,000 years ago for the saints and the faithful in Christ Jesus and not just in Ephesus. We could even cross that out and say, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, to the saints at Cornwall, the faithful in Christ Jesus. And that's the approach I want us to take this summer as we dive into this, that we would see this as if it were the apostle Paul in Rome, in prison, and he writes to a church halfway around the world called Cornwall in Bellingham, Skagit Valley in 2019, that this would be for us, this would be for our church, and this would be for our purposes. That's why I hope that you will just engage in this and not just say, oh yeah, they're, they're talking about these guys in Ephesus. This is for us. Now with this book, real quick, it's broken up into two pieces. The first three chapters, chapters one through three, are a, a, a theological doctrinal statement. A lot of doctrine in the first half of it. Chapters four through six, the back half, is a very personal and practical application. How do we live out what we learned in the first part of this book? And there's an overall theme. The overall theme of this book is this whole idea of being unified in Christ and in the church. That's, that's the name of the series, unified. There's this oneness. One comes up a lot in this book. Now, if we will approach this as if it were a letter written to us as a church, written to us as followers of Christ, then every time it says us and we, it's not just people from 2,000 years ago. It's us and we. So, one more thing, and then I promise I'm almost done. In verse 3, he says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. Not just Paul in the church in Ephesus, but the people at Cornwall Church. And this is, this is where we're gonna go next week. 
with these unsearchable riches of the blessings of Christ that Christ has already blessed us with. Now, I told you I wasn't gonna preach today. This is just a lesson. Here's what I wanna challenge you with because I really hope that, you, that you'll engage with us on this. I wanna challenge you with two things this week before we come back together a week from now. One is I wanna challenge you, as I've done in recent years, anytime we study a book, to go to the Bible Project because they give a very good overview of the entire book. So you get to see the whole thing. Instead so just like little pieces, you get to see the whole thing as a whole. So here's what I wanna, my first challenge with you is this. When you go to your computer on the little Google bar, Google these four words, read the Bible, Ephesians. Don't use the quotation marks, just those four words. Read the Bible, Ephesians. And it'll pull up, and then hit send. It'll pull up a bunch of stuff, and there'll be these little boxes of videos. The video that is eight minutes and 57 seconds long, that's the one you wanna watch, okay? So here's what I'm asking. Would you invest nine minutes, nine minutes, in the next seven days, nine minutes to watch this so you get an over a bird's eye view to grasp the the entirety of this book that's the first challenge It'll only take you nine minutes the second one is this would you be willing to read a chapter a day in this book there's only six chapters so you could read through the entire letter in six days if this was paul writing a letter to cornwall then we need to Read the letter. <laughs> he sent it to us. Read the letter. Six chapters. Maybe one day this week, you watch the video. Nine minutes. So that's it. Tapped out. Okay, fine. The next day, read a chapter. The next day, another chapter. And by the time you come back next week, you will have read the entire letter. You will have had a great overview. And you'll be ready to digest it. And you'll begin to see things that otherwise you would not have seen. So that's my challenge to you. Watch the nine-minute video. Minimally. Read through the letter at least once or once a day if, if you've got all kinds of time and you're overly aggressive, what have you. I just want us to see that this is for us, that this is not only the distilling of the essence of the Christian faith. This is a message of the unsearchable riches of Christ for us.